Happy Easter. I'm glad that you chose to join us this morning to celebrate what God has done for us on this Easter morning. If you are a guest with us, uh, thank you for joining us. If you're here with your family, uh, just thankful that you've chose to celebrate with us this morning. Uh, we've been talking about, in recent weeks, about different characters in the Bible surrounding the event of Easter. We've been calling it Easter people. And... It's hard to talk about Easter people without talking about the man himself, Jesus. So today we're going to dive into the scripture a little bit about Jesus and Easter. And one of the things that's been interesting, I, you know, we've, we've talked about Mary Magdalene. We've talked about Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Last week we talked about Peter. And all throughout, we're looking at this through the lens of how we can identify with these people. These aren't just mythological stories. These are real people with real lives. How do we connect with their story? What does it mean for us? What can we learn about God? What can we learn about ourselves by studying the Easter people? And, you know, when it comes to somebody like Peter where, you know, you can see his mistakes, you see his successes, the ups and the downs of his journey, we all can identify with that in some way. We know what that feels like to be like Peter in some way. But when it comes to Jesus himself, I don't know. I think I probably, you're, maybe you're like me. I kind of have the tendency of going, I can't identify with Jesus because he was Jesus. You know, he, he lived a sinless life. He's God in the flesh. How could I possibly identify with Jesus? How could I put myself in his shoes or learn from what he did? Is it possible to see yourself in Jesus' story? And I want to suggest to you this morning that the key to hope is recognizing yourself in Jesus' story. The key to hope is recognizing yourself in Jesus' story. Well, how do we do that? That can be a challenge to think about. When we celebrate Easter, what is it really that we're celebrating? You know, is it because a man rose from the dead? Well, that's certainly worth celebrating. We do have several stories in the Bible of people rising from the dead. They don't get their own holiday. Why do we celebrate Jesus rising from the dead? Really, what I want to ask you this morning to think about this week and in the weeks to come as we continue to talk about this is, what is the ultimate Christian hope? What is the ultimate Christian hope? We're celebrating something that Jesus did. Why are we celebrating it? Why does it give us hope? This is why we have to have holidays, is to remind ourselves of these realities. I want to begin in John chapter 1, verse 14, in helping us identify with Christ's story and then what, it, what the ultimate Christian hope really is. And it begins with John recording in the beginning of his gospel. Speaking of Jesus, he said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, what does he mean by the Word? He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about Jesus being preeminent. Jesus uh, was preexistent. He was there in the beginning. John says nothing was made without him. He was there with God the Father in the making of the world. In fact, when we look in the book of Genesis, what does God say? He doesn't say, let me make man in my own image. He says, let us make man in our image. Jesus was there in the beginning. John says there was nothing made 
that didn't go through Jesus. And he records in here, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Can I just remind you of something this morning? God chose to be like you. Have you ever stopped and considered that reality? God chose to live and experience what you've experienced. I hope that reminds you of how much he loves you, how much he cares. Sometimes we can get a little bit critical of God when we look at creation and we we see that Adam and Eve sinned and creation is broken and death has entered the picture and life is difficult and we can get mad at God. Why did you do, why'd you make it this way? Why did it go this way? Why didn't you do it differently? How did you allow this to happen? And yet we also realize in God in his infinite wisdom, knowing things way beyond what we know, chose to become like one of us. Just an amazing demonstration of humility and love and compassion for you and I. First of all, Jesus chose to be like us. He chose to walk in human form. He chose to feel the things that we feel. Shortest verse in the Bible. Here's for all of you that don't like memorizing Bible verses. Here's your verse. How many of you already know what it is? Because it's the easiest one to memorize, right? There you go. Two words. Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. If we were in Sunday school, you'd all get a piece of candy for remembering this verse. Jesus wept. And yet, how profound is this statement? God in the flesh feels the things that you feel. He was grieving over his friend Lazarus who had died. He was grieving at the hopelessness of death and the frustration and grieving of the people around him. I don't know exactly what he was thinking, but I know that he was feeling and he wept. Have you ever wept? We talked about this last week in Peter's story. It says, Peter wept bitterly. And we can identify with that deep hurt and pain when we weep bitterly. God chose to feel the pain that you feel to identify with you. See, when we want to think about whether or not we can identify with Christ in his life, how we see ourselves in a story, the first thing is to realize is that he first chose to be like you before you choose to be like him. He first chose to be like you, to feel what you feel, to experience what you experience. He was tempted. Have you ever been tempted? We all know what that feels like, to want to do something we know we shouldn't do, to have the temptation to rebel against God or to do what we know is wrong. Jesus also was tempted. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18 says this, For because he himself has suffered, Jesus has suffered, this is speaking of Jesus, and tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Don't you appreciate it? You know what it's like when someone's trying to give you advice about something they've never experienced? It's like when your kids are lecturing you as a parent about how to be a better parent. You should just let me do what I want. Yeah. But Jesus chose to go through the things that you and I go through so that he could identify with our suffering and we also then could look to him as someone who understands who has been there, who's walked the walk before us as a forerunner. Jesus felt things you feel. He's tempted 
like you've been tempted. He suffered. He suffered as much as any human being has ever suffered. The physical pain of the crucifixion is one thing. What did he feel carrying the sins of the world on the cross? What did he feel carrying all of that weight? I don't know. But he suffered. He was familiar with suffering. He was a man of sorrows. He suffered for us. Can you see yourself feeling the things he felt? We can. We can identify with Jesus. God made that a reality for us. God himself has felt the things you feel. He did so out of love for you. John 3.16 says, For God so loved. We are always reminding ourselves of that. What was God's motivation to send his son to the earth and to the cross? Because he loved the world. I know some of us are tempted to believe it's because he was so sick and tired of the way things were. He was so annoyed with humans. Whatever you think the reason was, the scripture tells us that God so loved the world. He chose this journey. He's also experienced something that those of us in this room have not. He experienced death. What is death? This, uh, this last Friday, I celebrated my 45th birthday, which if, if you graduated from college with a math degree, you know that's halfway to 90. I'm getting to that point in my life where I'm not really that thrilled about my birthday. Uh, this year, I get hearing aids for a gift. Great. It's true. You know, as we get old, we just, whenever we reflect on it, we think about, my time is limited. People move on from this world. My body is not going to last forever. What happens when we die? What is death like? Unfortunately, on Friday, my grandmother also passed away. And I believe she was 84, 85. So I had the joy of having my grandmother in my life for a lot of years, and I was blessed for that, right? And, uh, you know, when something like that happens, you find yourself thinking about, how is she seeing the world on this Easter morning? What does it look like? What does she understand now that we can't possibly understand? What did it feel like for her to take her last breath and leave her body behind? These are the kind of things that we start to think about when we consider death. It's kind of scary sometimes. Or for those of us who are still here, there's the grief that we must walk through. One thing when I do funerals, I pretty consistently talk about is that death is actually not natural to us. We talk about like the circle of life and death is natural, but in God's original creation, death was not normal. Death came because of sin. Death has authority because of sin in the world. And so when man rebelled against God and sin entered the world, so did death. And death becomes a natural consequence now of the world in which we live. But it's not natural, you know. There's something in all of our hearts that doesn't like it. Even though my grandmother was, she was, she was older, 
she was suffering, her mind wasn't with her anymore, and you, you, have those, you pray those things you don't normally pray, like, Lord, have mercy on her, just take her home so her suffering could be over. But for the most part, we cling to life because there's something in us that goes, it's not right that we die. Jesus died. He knows what that feels like. He knows what it's like to step across that boundary to the other side. He knows what it's like to experience the grief of death. That's why he wept at Lazarus' tomb, I believe. He did so to identify with what it is that you and I feel. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2 says this, It's better to go in the house of mourning than to go into the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart, or take it to heart, that verse means. You know, Ecclesiastes is full of this kind of talk. And if we don't apply some wisdom to it, it can be kind of depressing. But he says things like, both the righteous and the wicked die. Why does this matter? We all have the same fate. We're all going to the same place. We're all going to leave it behind. And we do. And I ask you again, what is the ultimate hope of Christianity? What is the ultimate hope for our faith? Why do we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus? You know, the word resurrection, we're, we're kind of talking about death here, and the word resurrection, obviously, we understand, means to come back to life in some way. But sometimes I think we misunderstand and mistranslate the word resurrection. I think if you just walk down the street and ask people what it really meant in a Christian sense or a spiritual sense, people wrongly treat it as a cinnamon Cinnamon. Synonym. Did you have a cinnamon roll out there today? <laughs> a cin- Okay, Lord, come back in the meeting, please. We've got to keep on track here. We treat resurrection as a synonym of going to heaven. When we read our Bible, we say, Jesus was resurrected, or we don't even really think about it with Jesus, but we apply it to ourselves, like, we will experience resurrection, we'll be in heaven someday. That's a, that's a misuse of the word. Resurrection is literally for the flesh to come back to life. See, the Bible story doesn't say that Jesus died and went to heaven. End of story. And that was his resurrection. Does it say that? What does it say? He's not here. He is risen, Luke tells us. His body rose. His physical body Drew breath again. He became a living flesh again. That is what resurrection really is. Jesus, I mean, of all the people that should, quote unquote, go to heaven, Jesus would be the likely candidate, correct? But it's so much more than that. Jesus came back to fleshly life. And the Bible teaches us many interesting things about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Verses 16 through 20. Mr. Wald is going to be teaching us on this in a couple of weeks. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. See, the Corinthians were challenging Paul and saying, there is no resurrection of the dead. There is no such thing. Paul's saying, oh, contraire. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. So if Jesus had not been raised, that would still be our condition. Then those also who have 
fallen asleep in Christ, have perished. See, Paul starts to use this language of death about falling asleep. I think he's trying to illustrate something for us to understand really what death is, what it means to die. He's saying if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then those who have fallen asleep are actually completely gone. They've perished. They're actually dead, long-term dead. But Paul's arguing against this. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What does that mean? If our hope, you know, if you, maybe you had some initial answers that came to your mind when you thought about what is the ultimate hope of Christianity? Well, it's to have peace. I mean, it's, it's a big hope for me. I want to be able to walk out my day-to-day life and go through the sufferings and the trials and the things I experience in this life, and I want to have peace. That's my hope. But is that your ultimate hope? Because you die someday. Is that as far as it goes? Is that all the hope you can have is to hopefully have a good life? Life's tough. The Bible never promises you an easy life. You will suffer. <laughs> That's part of the journey. It's painful, this broken world. And yes, we can have peace along that journey, but I don't think it's our ultimate hope. Paul says, if, if, if our hope is only in this life, then that's pitiful. There's so much more because it goes way beyond this. I think there's a wisdom when considering the timeline of your life. And if this was the day you were born and this is the day you're at today, And this is the day you pass away. Where are you on the scale of your life? Way down here. Because you're going to live after that. On and on and on and on and on. There's so much more than this. But Jesus took that step to the other side. And he came back. He was resurrected. I just told you earlier that The reason we have death in this life is because of sin. But Jesus didn't have sin. So guess what couldn't keep him down? Death. Death has no authority where there's no sin. So guess what? For those who accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sin, guess what what won't hold you down? Death. It won't keep you in the grave. You will be resurrected someday. The Bible says in the book of Revelation that actually the creation is made new, a new heavens and a new earth. Can you imagine what that will be like? Have you ever daydreamed about the Garden of Eden back in the day? I mean, they're running around naked for crying out loud. It must be warm and pleasant place. Yes, that's appropriate for part of an Easter message. And we look forward to the day when God makes all things new. When sin goes away and death is no more, it says he wipes away the tear from every eye. The former things won't even be remembered. That's how amazing it's going to be. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. And that's where this creation is headed. To a new creation as God intends it to be, with the forgiveness of sin and the tears wiped away. I don't know about you, but that's worth celebrating. 
And that's what we celebrate today. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits. You know, in Bible times, in the, in the Jewish Old Testament law, when they'd bring in a crop, they'd take the first portion of it and they would bring it to the temple. It was the first fruits. And this is a foreshadowing of Christ. Christ rising from the dead in his eternal flesh, his undying flesh, is the first fruits for the rest of the crop. When he rose from the dead in that new undying body, he's showing us how it will be for us. He's the forerunner, the first fruits, the beginning, the oldest brother. All those things, the Bible talks about him in those terms. That is the hope that you and I have. Can you see yourself resurrected? What's your resurrected body going to look like? Don't get too out of control here. We actually do know some things about it because Jesus had it. Jesus had a resurrected body. And there's some interesting verses in the Bible that just give us a little bit of insight into this. In John chapter 21, verses 12 through 14, this is the third time that he's appeared to the disciples. And they've just had this big catch of fish. It's a miracle. And they come to the shore. And Jesus says, come, have breakfast. You will have breakfast in your resurrected body. Think about it. I'm not, I'm not even joking. I'm serious. We will have breakfast we will eat. We will have actual flesh that contradicts this notion that we just go to heaven and are living in this spiritual state for eternity. That's not what the Bible teaches. We are resurrected. We are in a body, in a new heavens, in a new earth when this all wraps up. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? See, there's several times after Jesus is resurrected that the disciples are like, I know it's him, but is it? I recognize him, but I... Don't, maybe. There's something, something must be different about him because they kind of don't recognize him, but they kind of do in his new body. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. I was hoping we wouldn't have to eat fish in heaven, but maybe we will. This is now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. He appeared behind locked doors, John 20, 19. All the disciples are gathered there, and all of a sudden, Jesus just, whoop, he's right there. What does that mean? Did he, could he like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I have no idea. But it's different. It isn't normal flesh. He didn't have to come knock on the door and wait for them to unlock it. He just showed up. Maybe he's the only one that will get to do that. I'm not sure. Here's another thing that's really interesting about Jesus' resurrected body. He still bore the scars of his earthly life. He still had the marks in his hand, in his feet, and his side. Huh, I wonder if I'm going to have some of my scars when I get to the other side. I don't know. It's just fascinating to think about. That you will have a different, but maybe not entirely different body someday. Some of you are like, praise God, this one's getting old. He could be touched. They were, at first, they kind of wondered if he was a spirit, a ghost. 
which you would do too if you saw somebody that you thought was dead standing there. You'd go, what, what's going on here? And he said, I'm not a ghost. Give me something to eat. Do ghosts eat? Well, I guess not. So he ate. What is the ultimate Christian hope? What are we ultimately hoping for? Something just in this life? I don't think so. What happens when we die? You know, in the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about resurrection and death. Seeing what the Bible does have to say. You're going to want to come back next week and the weeks after if you want to dive into this more. But this is so important. The author N.T. Wright talks about it, and, and he's kind of summarizing some of the philosophers, but a lot of theologians as well. And whatever it is that you think about death and what you think about life after that sets the tone for all the serious questions you're going to ask yourself about life. Because if all we think about is this life, it's pretty shallow and selfish conclusions we can come to very easily. But when we begin to realize that death is the fate of us all and there's something so much more, it changes the way we think and act. What does the Bible teach us about those things that we can rely on? In a few weeks, we're going to have a baptism service where we're going to have people up here. We're going to baptize them. We're going to celebrate. We're going to have music playing. It's going to be a lot of fun. But why do we baptize? Why do we get baptized? I said in the beginning, you know, we could identify with Peter and we could identify with Mary Magdalene. How do we identify with Jesus? In a lot of ways, that's what baptism is doing. When you get baptized, you're identifying with him. You're saying, I identify with that death, that laying in the water, the old, the old me, the one that, the one that is corrupted and sinful and where I was God of my own life. And I'm coming back up out of the water like Jesus resurrecting out of the tomb. It's a foreshadowing. It's a declaration. It's a symbol. It's an act of obedience. It's something that we do to identify, saying, we're telling everybody in the world, I identify with Christ. I'm taking on that death and resurrection. He died in my place where I deserved it. He carried the suffering in the cross where I should have carried it. But he did it because he loves me. And when I identify with that, when I believe in that, I become a new creation. I come up out of that water declaring I'm going a new direction. I've submitted myself to the Lord who loves me. And it's just a taste of what's yet to come. Your body will die, lest Jesus return soon. We'll all have to step across that line. We have to face that reality. What do you believe about it? It will shape how you live. One more thing I want to mention before we take, a, we take communion together. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. We know what ransom is. We've seen it in a movie. I'm not sure that many, anybody would pay very much to get me back, but 
That's what a ransom is, right? Well, we were captive. We were chained up, bound to death with no hope except Jesus paid the ransom. He stepped in and took your place. He shed his blood as a sacrifice for your sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. So then, just as when one trespass brought condemnation for all men, what's Paul talking about here? He's talking about Adam. When, when Adam sinned as the leader of all mankind, all mankind sinned. Sin came through one man to all mankind. So also, one act of righteousness brought justification and life for all men. He calls Jesus the second Adam. Just like sin came through Adam, it leaves through Christ for those who accept that ransom, that sacrifice, that justification. For justice through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. You, we cannot make ourselves righteous. It's through Jesus Christ that we do it. That's, that's what it is to put your faith in something is to Say, I believe in that message and I accept that for myself. He is my Lord. And there your justification comes. You see, we have so much to celebrate today. Think about your future. Think about your ultimate hope. Is it in this life only? Then let's keep reading the word and let's learn some more. Let's draw closer to God in other ways. Let's let him invest in us that we might change now in anticipation of our future life with him in eternity. Today we're going to take communion. And what we're going to do, I'm going to invite the worship team back up here or whoever's playing music for us. And we're going to, you know, this section of the room, if you come to this table and this section to this table etc., etc., kind of split up as evenly as we can. If you find that your line is super long and the other one's super short and you want to make your way over to another line, uh, feel free to do that. So what we're going to do, if I could have you just all stand. And as the worship team uh, begins to play, I'm just going to invite you to step out in the aisle, step forward. We have juice or wine, whichever you choose. Just take uh, a piece of bread and a cup, and then return to your seat, and then wait till everybody's been served, and then we will take communion together. So let's go ahead and get started. Go ahead and step out. Thank you for just step forward and begin to serve yourself, and we'll just enjoy the music of the worship team while you take the bread and the wine, and then I'll lead us through communion. When the hour had come, Jesus reclined at the table with his apostles. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before my suffering. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. They were celebrating Passover. Passover is the event in Jewish history when Moses was liberating the captives of Egypt, when God was delivering them, the final plague is what came to be known as the Passover. And the angel of death passed over Egypt. 
and took the firstborn of every family, except for those who had put the blood of a lamb on the doorposts. Jesus' crucifixion is no coincidence of the timing. He was the fulfillment of that lamb. He was the ultimate fulfillment of Passover with his death and his blood being shed. And when you grab that little cup of juice or wine, that represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for you and I. And when you take that bread, that represents the body of Christ. And when you take that bread and you drink that cup, you're declaring his death until he returns. You're participating in his sacrifice. Just like baptism is identifying with death and resurrection, so eating the bread and drinking the cup is identifying with the death of Christ. Him taking your place. Him carrying a burden you could never carry on your own. That's why this is so important what we do today. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and he broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant, the new agreement between God and man, the new way in which we will relate to God. The new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Would you take the bread? and the cup. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful this morning that we can identify with your life and your death and someday your resurrection. That you walked a path and we will walk in your footsteps because of the trail that you blazed, because of overcoming death, of being that spotless lamb, shedding your blood in my place. Because you did that for me, I can walk in those footsteps into eternity, into resurrected life, into relationship with you even today with your spirit in me. All of us can experience that because of what you did. Because you so loved the world that you chose to be like us, to suffer like us, to be tempted like us. You identify with our weaknesses. You're a great high priest who can help us because you understand. God, I thank you for your sacrifice this morning. We do this in remembrance of you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to leave you with one final passage of Scripture out of Romans chapter 8. As we consider what happens in death, and we consider what the ultimate Christian hope really is over the next few weeks, I want to leave you with this thought that Paul shares with us in verse 22 of Romans 8, beginning in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits, we talked about that, 
of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What are we waiting for? What are we hoping for? We're awaiting the redemption of this body, this one that's broken and just turned 45 last week. I'm awaiting its redemption. I look forward to it. For in this hope, we are saved. This hope, this hope of being adopted as a son, the redemption of my body in the future that God has. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who who hopes for what he sees? But we hope for what we do not see. We wait for it with patience. I hope this morning God has drawn your heart close to his and prompted you, challenged you, encouraged you to draw close to him, to accept that sacrifice for yourself, to draw close to him and begin to hope for the redemption that is coming to his children. I hope that you have a great Easter Sunday. I hope that you enjoy your family and your turkey or your ham or whatever you do today. But remember this. There's a hope, an ultimate hope that awaits you and I. I'm going to close in prayer and then we'll be done. God, we bless you this morning and we thank you. I pray for all of my friends here today. Lord, that you would encourage and empower them as they go that you'd be stirring it in their hearts, that you'd be stirring their hunger for you, for understanding you, for knowing you, for understanding your way, for growing in hope. I pray for those that feel hopeless this morning, that can hardly even grasp what we're talking about and don't feel it for themselves. Lord, I pray you'd give them the breakthrough, that you would draw them close to you. Thank you for my church family here today and the church all over the world today that celebrates what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Happy Easter, everybody. Have a great rest of your day.